0: You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change.
1: Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm the creative editor at Nori's Carbon Removal Marketplace. Today I have with me Paul Greenberg, fisherman and author of Four Fish, American Catch, The Omega Principle, and his latest, The Climate Diet, 50 Simple Ways to Trim Your Carbon Footprint. Thanks for being here,
0: Paul. Oh, my pleasure, Ross.
1: It is my pleasure too. I've read all those books that I've named and got a lot out of them. And so my first question has to be the most obvious one, which is why have you left your beat on fish? <laughs> what did they ever do to you?
0: Over overfishing.
1: Overfishing.
0: Fish yeah. <laughs> no. I mean, no, I still love fish and I still write about fish and I still am actually, funnily enough, launching a podcast with a co-host. I think it's gonna be called Fish Talk, like Car Talk, but with Fish. But I guess I felt like I had said what I wanted to say on a fairly deep level. And also, in all three books, climate change just kept coming up again and again. And so rather than kind of beat around the uh, the kelp forest, I thought I would dive in. <laughs> I can't stop myself and really just give it my shot, you know, what I had to say about climate. and And I will say that there are like, Ross, I'm sure you have talked to like millions of Many more qualified people than I on the climate front. You know, I, I think you had Betsy Colbert on the show recently. Mm-hmm. You know, those are giants in the field and so forth. All I was trying to do with this book was to some degree, it's kind of a thought exercise. It's sort of like, all right, we read Farhad Manju and he says a trillion, two trillions is not enough. We need a trillion every year. And other people say, hey, we're doomed. We're totally screwed. There's nothing to do. Done. But Meanwhile, there's us, right? We're living here. You know, you're like a nice, responsible person. You want to do something. So I just thought, okay, well, what if I asked the 50 smartest people I could find on all of these different topics and just asked them, what could I personally do? And so that's this book.
1: Mm. And one of the things I associate with your previous writing in particular is this, you have some line, I think it's in for fish, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have some line about how American consumers can only keep one piece of advice in their heads at a time. I think you're using <laughs> the example of of mercury and tuna.
0: That is true. I think in that case, it was it was mercury. And then but you, know, you keep mercury and overfishing in your mind when you're spreading the tuna on your sandwich. So again, you know, there could have been 150 or 350 ways to trim your carbon footprint. But I was just trying to kind of Put something that would fit in your pocket to some degree as well. Um, you know, Mao, Chairman Mao had his little red book. Um, this is my little green book that hopefully, you know, people will find this book is specifically designed not to be overwhelming. If that, <laughs> which, which I guess an author, that's sort of like setting a low bar. I thought, you know, we try to be over, you know, we try to like, blah, you know, make a huge book. But in this case, I was really just trying to make a small, manageable book.
1: Has your publisher pre-approved the comparison to Mao?
0: Well, you know, in terms of total market dominance, I think they would agree.
1: (laughs) Well, I bring up that mercury comment because you were saying that the story was actually much more complex than the consumer wanted to believe. They just want to be told, eat this or don't eat that. And any nuance further downstream from that is functionally impossible to get into their heads. So is this your attempt to make peace with that? The fact that you're writing books that do not sink into people's heads in neat ways?
0: I think it's an attempt to do the backstory out of sight. And, you know, one of the biggest challenges I had with this book was saying to the different experts to stop qualifying. You know what I mean? I'm sure you you must interview a lot of academics, right? And academics never want to say tuna is bad, right? They never want to say, one. Th- that, well, but this, there's that, the blah, so so. I really said to everyone I interviewed, no, 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 don't do that. Just give me the best that you can do. And so there are certainly people who are going to find fault with this book, but you know, I tried my best to kind of, if you will, maybe square that circle with that, that I raised earlier in my earlier books, but, but really just like, like most people who read these books, they're not experts. They're not climatologists. They're, you know, they have their own various degrees of expertise, but they just want something quick.
1: Yeah, I think that's true in general and writing something that is, you know, simple as in, in the subtitle here, fights over life cycle assessments and the actual impacts of actions are notoriously disputed, right? Yes. It's like uh, there's whole conferences of people who like to get together and argue about this sort of thing. I mean, it, it's sort of a bold way to stick your neck out, but I think there are some, I, th- I think many of them are uh, good things to do. I think some of them I'm going to poke you on a little bit and see if we can can figure out. That's fine. You'll allow me to do
0: so. No, absolutely. I mean, again, I took my best shot. And (laughs) the thing is, again, let's think who I would like to read this book. Obviously, I'd like you, somebody like you to read it. But also, I'd like your, you know, maybe I'm assuming too much. I'd like your mother or your grandmother to read it and feel like not totally like left out in the woods so that the maximum number of people could actually be brought into that question. You know, like, is a chicken good to eat, you know, relative to a cow? Yes. But anyway, so anyway, away. I don't want to tread on your interview.
1: No, that's okay. That's totally fine. Before we dig into the book, I was hoping you might indulge me with I had a listener email come in recently asking about Seaspiracy. I'd I'd love your thoughts and also just the state of the fisheries in general. Has anything changed with your writing? What should we be eating and not eating? Can you just discourse for a moment with us?
0: Yeah, so Seaspiracy has been like bubbling up in my sphere. I teach a course in the animal studies program at NYU, and we happen to have as our guest a guy named Jonathan Balcom, who wrote a really great book called What a Fish Knows. And he had tipped me off, tipped our class off. Watch out. sparrow, is coming. Full confession, I have not watched the movie yet. I'm planning actually to show it to my class in a week or two and then go over it. Um, The chatter I am hearing, of course, is, you know, from the big environmental nonprofits. Not happy with it. Not happy with the journalistic methods. Obviously, the fishing and aquaculture sectors, also not happy with it. You know, personally... I have really shrunk down my seafood consumption. I actually went totally vegan for a year and only added fish back in um, partially as an omega-3 thing, but partially just kind of as a sociability thing, if that sounds horrible. Like it's very hard to be a hard vegan and have non-hard vegan friends and go out to dinner, which of course, you know, nobody's been going out to dinner for the last year, but assuming that we're going to go out to dinner again, I don't know. I, <laughs> there are certain things that... I, like, I will always buy, eat, order wild sockeye salmon uh, because it's a well-managed fishery. It's carbon efficient, good for you, low pollutants. I will always eat farmed bivalves, mussels, clams, oysters, et cetera, because they're low, very low carbon. It's hard to argue for the intelligence of a mussel. Maybe people are ready to do that, but um, I will eat them. I will always eat canned or frozen anchovies, sardines, small forage fish that, as you know, having read Omega Principle, 99% of which is ground up and fed to other animals. Um, I would much rather more efficiently eat them directly myself. And then the other thing, it's a little bit of a double dip, but I will always eat a canned salmon. Canned salmon is pretty much always wild. So I'll always eat canned pink, canned sockeye salmon um, without much feeling of regret at all. I
1: love this counterintuitive idea Maybe it's not counterintuitive, but at least on first look appears that way. That the best way to support some of these sustainable fisheries is to eat more of of that fish. Is that still something that people should be considering?
0: Well, I think in the four things that I'm talking about, yes. I mean, prime example. As again, you know, so nice to talk to somebody who's read all of my books. But you know, take the huge fight we had with the Trump administration over the Pebble Mine, which would have been the largest copper and gold mine in North America, cited atop. The largest wild salmon run in America, if not in the world. So the people who largely fought that fight were commercial fishermen. And we won the fight. You know, we won the fight actually even before Trump was out. We got Donald Trump Jr. to go come out against the mine because he was a fisherman. Um, not a commercial fisherman, just a sport guy. And actually backstory is that is we uh, saw him post about Crystal Bay sockeye on his Instagram feed, and then did a whole New York Times op-ed about it, and I think it got back to him and so forth because of the hypocrisy. We say, "Look at these great salmon that my father is just about to destroy <laughs> entirely." So that's a case to me, lockstep: the people who protected this watershed, protected salmon, protected bears, protected all these kinds of things, and the other thing, which again, what I always talk about is farmed mussels and oysters and clams those things clean the water and they require clean water in order to exist. They are the economic argument for clean water, in fact. So there are these things out there that I think can be fulcrum for positive change if you support the way the industry is being, the way if the industry is acting well. So yes, that's counterintuitive, but I agree. With, I, yes, I agree with myself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> after I forget which book I was reading of yours at the time, but after I, I read this one, Facebook, I think, knew that I was reading you or something because <laughs> Taylor Shellfish started getting advertised to me, and because ah. I'm in Seattle, so I was like, "Ooh, I'll get some of these oysters and mussels and do my yeah. part." And uh, <laughs> I gotta say, I'm I'm pretty impressed by it, and I, it's nice to know that the carbon Im- uh, impact of them is very low. They clean the ocean. Yeah. They're not popular with their you know rich neighbors, apparently.
0: Uh, they are not. They are not, and you know that's a whole struggle over the coast, and it's happening in Long Island too, We're People were up, up, upset about oyster leases, you know, basically taking up yacht space, in my opinion. It's like um, the
1: least sympathetic fight of all time.
0: <laughs> exactly. It's like, oh, Buffy, we you our yacht past these oyster bees. <laughs> but yeah, I think these things, people who work in concert with the environment, if they're making food, I'd much rather eat an oyster or a mussel than, you know, a soybean farmer that's dumping pesticides into the waterways, you know? So anyway,
1: yeah, I find this is one of those nuanced cases of whether or not to eat meat and what's replacing it. And some of the plant-based meats that I've seen that rely upon monocultured soy, you're like, this is not a great solution in my humble opinion. Exactly. Surely there's going to be something a little bit better than that. And I think you get into this too. Like you even say, be a picky plant eater. You can be an ethical vegan or an ethical omnivore. There are ways to screw both of these up. Is that sort of what you're getting
0: at? Yeah. I mean, this mostly came from a researcher at Bard named Gidden Eschel, and he's the one who had that great quote. You can be a, a perfectly horrible, I can't remember what the exact quote is, but a horrible citizen of the world or wonderful citizen of the world in either direction. I, I summarize here. But yes, you know, and the biggest aspect there is that to recreate meat out of plants takes energy and takes resources. And my personal approach to veganism, and I have been largely vegan with the exception of a few fish per week, is to have a whole plant-based diet. Um, that's also based on, my, if you Google around, you might want to link back to it, but I did an article for Eating Well called The Plant Prescription, where basically I looked at all my cardiovascular, I was having like midlife cardiovascular issues. And, you know, I followed the advice of a number of cardiologists or Lifestyle people, doctors who looked at this and they basically a whole plant based diet is going to steer you towards the right nutrients away from things like saturated fat and all these other kind of additives, excess sugar, things that are going to show up in the processed products. So you save your health, but you also save all the energy it takes to recreate the feeling of meat in your mouth, which I don't really need.
1: And you get to act extra ethical in front of everyone. You get to hold that over everyone's head. What's that like?
0: Absolutely. Well, you know, it's funny you should mention that I was, um, so this last couple of weeks, Nissan Leaf loaned me or Nissan loaned me a fully electric vehicle called a Leaf. And I've been driving in New York City, writing an article like, is it possible to own an electric vehicle in New York City? So at one point I needed to charge up and, um, you know, can imagine, um, I don't know if you've spent time in New York City, but not so easy to find a charge in New York. Where did I find the charging station? Whole Foods. So like, I'm a perennial insomniac and I drove my electric vehicle to Whole Foods in Gowanus, hooked up to the charger. It was like five in the morning and I was sitting there charging, right? I'm charging. I'm there at Whole Foods. I'm like, Whole Foods is going to open in a couple hours. I like, could probably get my quinoa there. And I'm sitting there. Meanwhile, Whole Foods is a buzz with activity. And who's in there? Amazon workers boxing up quinoa for these peoples. And so I suddenly realized like, oh, my God, I am in this new area. I'm calling it the smugosphere, like the smugosphere. I'm in my electric vehicle charging at Whole Foods and then I'm going to buy my smug food or I'll have these other people bag up my smug food and then I'll go back and I'll feel like I've just totally been good to the world and no problem. I'm not doing any of this bad stuff. So I think all of us, you know, big Parentheses around everything we do that tries to make things better. Be careful of the smugosphere.
1: Oh, we just we just had Easter, but the people who get in trouble in the New Testament are always the people who think that they're better than everyone else. The people who are like, "Yeah, I'm a sinner." It's like, "Cool, you're good." The people who are <laughs> people who don't do that step, they get in trouble. So, is that the smugosphere? Maybe that's it.
0: <laughs> yeah, and 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 also to tell you the truth, like that's another reason why I wrote the climate diet. It's sort of like. It's not a smug book. It's not a gotcha book. It's just like, as best as I can tell, this is the best you could do. And I actually, one of the rules sort of in the afterwards, I think I tell people, like, basically, don't be smug. Like, if the point of the climate movement is to get as many hands on deck as possible, what's the point of being all high and mighty about the fact that you had an impossible burger instead of a burger burger? Like, the point is to just get as many people... As possible to be better than they are, and for some people, that might be going from conventional radishes to organic, but for other people who are like in the middle of like Iowa, switching from beef to chicken is actually a huge improvement and so if you've got a lot of people to go from beef to chicken who were not going to go from beef to radishes, that's actually a significant change, and so that's kind of was my thinking in all of this. again, maybe it's flawed, but that was my thought. no, I, I get that.
1: I want to run the LCA on the smugosphere, which is that, <laughs> you know, if you see someone on Instagram or something bragging about their choices, I think yeah. many people roll their eyes at it, but I'm wondering, yeah. does that actually cause people to change and imitate that? Should I not be rolling my eyes? Should I also be double clicking that and, and liking it? Cause it? It makes me feel weird to brag about something that you think you should be doing anyways. I don't know. What do you think I should do in a case like that? <laughs>
0: Well, you know, here's the thing. I mean, you're you're actually touching upon my other recent book, Goodbye Phone, Hello World, which is that like, you know, and that's kind of, in a way, this other book about like, 50 things you should do to get the fuck off of your phone and stuff. But Gandhi said something, which I think is really good. Don't speak unless it improves upon silence. And extend that to posting, right? Like, is... I think anyone who's about to post something should really truly ask themselves, is this approving upon my doing and saying nothing? If you think that your post is an improvement on that, then do it. But I know so much of what goes online, you know, because I do have this whole other side of me that looks at the tech industry and stuff that is like, man, it's all about virtue signaling, which is not necessarily virtue, right? So I don't know. I guess, I guess my feeling is we've got this whole... 40 or 50% of the country, well, it's actually not that much, let's say 30% of the country that is locked in, not wanting to admit climate change. So if we want to persuade them to get on board with this, is the way to persuade them through lots of smugospheric actions? Or is it to maybe lower the bar a little bit for them and not be so judgmental? Should they say, well, what could I do?
1: Yeah, I think that's actually a really smart way to go about it. I think being holier than thou is a pretty big turnoff. My dad had this line. He coached basketball when I was a kid, and said, "If you go for a layup, you put it in. You don't look back and check that it went in. You know that it went in. (laughs) (laughs) That's like the epitome of cool." Mm -hmm. And so, posting about something good you did on social media has always struck me as a violation of that core principle that I hold so deeply inside myself. But if it works. I don't know, maybe there's a way to virtue signal that actually gets people to act that wouldn't otherwise. It isn't just people who did the same thing as you all collectively back patting each other.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think people tend to do what their peers do. You know what I mean? And it's it's like, we're, we're very, we're social animals. We're very governed by what fits in, in our community. So I think it's sort of like, what pebble can I throw that will make a ripple do somebody who's sort of on the fence kind of, Get in line. I mean, of course, there's this whole other argument. Do you ever have like arch conservatives on your show?
1: Yeah, we've had a fair number of conservatives on the show. I don't know about arch. How conservative do you have to be before you get arch? Let's we'll say yes.
0: <laughs> so, arch conservative. So, like, if you have, have you had somebody on your show that was just like dug in, there is no climate change, that's it. What do you, what do you even have a podcast, Ross?
1: No, I've, I've thought about it before, but I've- I have never have, no.
0: Because I'm just wondering, you know, I go back and forth. I have a friend who's running for city council and actually I drove him around in my electric car the other day. And we had this whole discussion and we were wondering, like, is it worth trying to reach that 20 or 30 percent that is so dug in? I don't know. I, I I maintain a little bit of hope. At the same time, I do kind of like what our president is doing, like in just saying <laughs> $1.9 all right, I'm going for another two, and this time we're going to build windmills. you know, like I do think there is something about pushing it forward in a really hard way, but also not making a war out of it. I don't know. I'm still trying to work through it, but
1: no that that concern has come up so many times on the show too. One of the things I've been enjoying about the Biden administration is how. He's just sort of receded into the background in some. Yes, yes, well, yes, yes. This is yes, yes. very intentional and stage managed, right? Because we're all just totally. sick of it. It gets us all riled up. I've seen a lot less
0: anger lately. I don't know. So maybe maybe some of that stuff actually does work. I, don't know. I think so. Also, you know, keep in mind that you know, again, circling back to this food question and food footprint. So much of our improvable food print is happening in the heartland. You know, the whole you know corn soy cow complex. Before we started recording, we were talking about the difficulties of life cycle assessments and stuff like that. But I don't think anyone can deny that the corn-soy-cow combo is really at the heart of what we need to rethink climate-wise. And so if you have the people who are politically in control of those states completely uninvited into the dialogue then i don't really see how you're going to unwind that to some degree
1: i think that mentality is it reminds me of conquerors but you know that in a democracy whatever happens it's going to it's going to swing back whether it's 4 years 8 years 12 years so like there is some if you think medium term enough to not piss them off so much that they're going to like really revolt against everything and to treat people with some degree of respect and get proper buy-in trying to shove things down the other side's throat. I don't, I don't know. Maybe some political scientists will be like, actually all the important change in history has come from shoving things down the other side's throat. (laughs) But my intuition says that that's probably the wrong strategy.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's a long tradition and as you know, those of us who've looked at the politics of it, you know, many of these states were more liberal leaning in their past. And the replacement of economic values with cultural values has put us in a pretty tight spot. And so, you know, if we can, through this administration, start to see some economic advantages for some of these people who frankly are getting screwed by the corn, soy, cow, oligopoly, if we can start improving those people's lives through an alternative approach that is also climate friendly. I mean, that. Seems to me worth a shot. Would
1: you say that you wrote this book uh, with some of those insights in mind? Is this pointed a yeah. bit
0: more towards someone who maybe is this their first climate book at all? I would hope that many people will find this an accessible entry point. To me, when I thought of like how this book was going to happen or how this book was going to land, I was kind of imagining like the college student who leaves Des Moines and goes to NYU or something. Oh, man. So the Mao's Little Red Book is really in play now. (laughs) Well, sure. But like somebody who, you know, younger people obviously always tend to skew a little bit more liberal. But somebody who goes and takes an environmental studies class and is like, oh, my God, there's this and this and this. And then they go back to wherever they're from. And they, you know, they sit down at Thanksgiving table and they're about to launch into like a screed that makes everybody at the table feel terrible. So
1: I've been that in a guy. Way, <laughs> I've done that you, for sure. Yeah, me
0: too. Sure, <laughs> sure. And I probably, and there will continue to be people like that forever and ever. God bless. <laughs> but my hope is that like, in addition to the screed afterwards, the apology comes, right? It's like, grandma, I'm really sorry. I also didn't been this eat. this Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm so sorry. I didn't eat the ham. It was, it, I'm sure it was delicious, but listen, as a peace offering, I just thought you might like this little book. It shows, it's sort of like a calm way of sort of saying what I'm into. And, um, you know, it's funny because we've been going back and forth, me and Penguin Press, about like how to promote this book. And one of the things we've been doing is like these little Twitter cards. And it's like, and one of them is just like, can't get your parents to go vegan? Ask them if they consider the chicken. You know, which again, goes back to this idea that chicken is a lot smaller carbon footprint than a, than a cow. You know, and some like, Call me an accommodationist, and I'm sure there's a certain wing of the climate people who are saying, who would say, like, burn this book because we've made so much progress getting people talking about veganism. But have we really? You know, I don't know. What's your food? Are you a vegan or or what's your eating pattern yourself?
1: I don't know that I have something really strict. I try to eat when I eat meat. I try for it to be. Pasture raise if possible. I want to make, make yeah. sure the animal had a, a good life, at least reasonably. I yeah. don't feel perfectly great about that, but I've also hunted and, and fished a fair amount too. And sure. I don't think people who eat factory farm meat have anything to say to hunters about being ethically superior. Yeah. But uh, I try to be reasonably thoughtful about it, but I don't have some really defined system. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'd be open to finding one. I just haven't. But I try to, I've been cooking more and more vegetarian at the very least and vegan too and just trying to get more comfortable with delicious vegetarian fare and my ability yeah. to prepare it. I don't know, what do you think? You can you can dunk on me now if you want.
0: No, I don't really want to dunk on you. I mean, I think that it's a spectrum and I think I personally have chosen vegan vegan with a little fish, but you know, mostly mostly vegan in a large part cuz of cardiovascular health um, and it seems to work for me in those in reflecting better cardiovascular numbers. I also it's interesting once I started opting out of the industrial animal economy I was like it was it's was like wow do I really want to hop back into this you know what I mean like I had a whole year away from it in a in a way it was a little bit like being off my iPhone like once I had a whole year with my iPhone not beeping at me like, do, would I really want that noise in my consciousness again? And the answer was no, and it didn't really affect me. But you know one area, you know since we're both like to fish, I realized that that was actually a part of me that I did I do like to fish. I do like my participation in the ecosystem. I don't fish for like overfish species but I'm not going to make a hard fast line about that. And there are many people like I teach in the animal studies program at NYU. There's some ferocious vegans in that department, you know, lovely people, but ferocious. And they think I'm a murderer. And um, I don't know, I, you know, it's like the human biology is, is such that we did not evolve as vegans. And I'm going to permit myself to have a little bit of interaction as a predator on this planet.
1: I think that's fine. I think the mere fact of people actively thinking about this and debating it is a good sign. I think you even have this too about number six here is be thoughtful with local but there's also thoughts about how exactly you're eating meat and when. You also have suggestions. This reminds me of the Jonathan Saffron for his whole thing about only eating meat for dinner because that's a social occasion and getting that far is already I think most of the battle, right? Like is there, yeah. is it just the tyranny of small differences and you're there and so let's, let's pile drive you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think there is something about making the full switch to veganism that causes a little bit of a programming shift, which, again, compared to the iPhone thing, like there are people, there's a woman who wrote a book called um, How to Break Up With Your Phone. And she suggested to break up with your phone, you should spend a month off your phone and then gradually add back in the things that you think, you know, are kind of useful to you that you truly need. And I felt that way about veganism, right? Like I subtracted all of these things and then I suddenly, like I do a fair amount of reporting like in the heartland, you know, I, I, I did a piece about Ohio agriculture. I do stuff on the dead zone. I've been up and down the Mississippi and Minnesota and stuff like that. And like, where are you from originally? Are you from the Seattle area? Or are you from? No, I'm from the Southwest, Arizona. Okay. Well, anyway, I thought perhaps maybe you're from the Midwest, but like if you go to the midwest like there's this moment I remember once i was I was doing a story about the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, and I was in Minnesota, I was like in the corn and soy heartland of it all, and it was just like this cloak of like fertilizer fog just like enveloped this entire little town, and then I went to the fertilizer depot and it was like a mountain of freaking fertilizer just like standing on top of it and looking down. And it was just like so shapeless and industrial. Meanwhile, it's like totally rural America. And I go to the guy showing me around, I go, what's the name of this town again? He goes, oh, uh, Walnut Grove, as in Little House in the Prairie. And I was like, can you imagine what freaking Pa would think if he saw what had been done to Walnut Grove? And so I guess, pulling back to your question, the fact that I am no longer really very much engaged with that whole system. I feel karmically makes me feel a little better. I mean, yeah, yeah, I eat some wheat. Da, 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 da. Generally speaking, I'm not in that system as much.
1: It's funny you locate your desire to be in it somewhat as, how should I frame it? It's a naturalistic language. You have a desire to remain a predator in some cases, to have that sort of old school hunter-gathering Is that part of why you why you think it's important still to fish, even though you're functionally a vegan most of the time?
0: Yeah, well, it's sort of like I don't want to be an invisible predator, right? Like I mean Oh yeah. (laughs) You know, it's like, gosh darn it, here we are with that millennial authenticity question. But if I'm gonna like kill stuff, I mean to some degree I would like to be the agent of death in that rather than being this sort of person behind the cloak you know, that is prompting somebody else to do the killing. I know that's like kind of also ran and, you know, Mark Zuckerberg went out and killed his own deer and so forth. But that is, that is how I feel. But there's something a little bit more, there's a little like more Walden-esque, you know, Thoreau-esque, which is that, you know, you must have had these experiences. I don't know where you fish, but like when I wade into a river to fish for trout, like I'm reading the river, like I'm looking at the caddisfly hatches. I'm seeing how the water slackens behind a boulder. I understand that an undercut bank is a place for a fish to get out of the mainstream of the current and perceive and save energy. So like there is no other way that I would ever have learned to feel that except as a fisherman. Some people I know can enter into those systems and just like. You know, like meditate on it, but for me, the act of participation in the ecosystem made me understand it as a child, and so I keep that with me in what I do as a, as a fisherman, as an adult fisherman.
1: This is a very good segue into some of the ones that I wanted to to poke on a little bit.
0: Yeah, please do. Please poke away. I think the okay. You can let
1: me know if you think this is
0: fair or unfair,
1: but I think the desire to merely yes. minimize one's carbon footprint it's the same problem that happens whenever you are maximizing for a single variable within a complex system. So like there are other things of value that are important and may in fact outrank one's carbon impact. For instance, I think if someone is called vocationally to be a parent and to have multiple children, I would say it would be a bad thing to uh, (laughs) curtail them. And not for demographic reasons, but I think just for living a good life, I think that should be an option. And sort of whenever there's fights about Bitcoin, it's always about, is it Bitcoin or is it the grid? Because people are gonna use energy and they're gonna find ways to use as much energy as cheaply as possible. That's just what they're gonna do. So do you wanna fix Bitcoin? That that cat's probably out of the bag at this point. Or do you wanna just make the grid clean? I would rather focus Mm -hmm. much more on the latter. So I don't wanna tell people to have less kids, Um, for both. I think the consequences of them, people having less kids now would actually be
0: worse in some ways. Betsy Colbert wrote to me, she's like, well, you know, I said, what do you think of the whole premise of the book? And she's like, you know, frankly, the only thing that would really make a difference is not to have children. And I have two children, so I'm not gonna, I I, I couldn't recommend that. (laughs) She did. She said that. Um, And um, there is, as you know, Come on. you, you personally have Spent a lot of time, I think, looking at these numbers. And when you look at the comparative graphs, it is true that, like, adding another person to the planet, you know, like, that's the, about the most significant thing that you can do uh, carbon wise is just not, is to have one less person in the world. I do believe that. What I was trying to do in the book is to say, you know, again, different people come to the table at different times in their life. But say this were to fall into the hands of somebody who was like 25, right? And they're having that discussion with their partner, like, are we going to have kids? How many kids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's worth having that discussion. Okay. If you decide not to do that, I understand. And that's why in the making family section of the book, there are other things that you could do. Like you know, number one is like, stop the frickin' crazy wedding shit. And I know there are so many, as I called uh, it one up ed i was been working on, but not just the Bridezilla's, but the Grummenstein's, you know, who are ready. COVID's ending. Oh my God, I'm going to do the biggest frickin' wedding of all time. I mean, just stop it already. Like, you look at the um, carbon footprints of weddings are pretty, pretty intense. So just thinking about, like, if you look at it as a spectrum, right? And on one side of the spectrum is... Having no kids, then a little closer is having one kid, even more two kids. But along that spectrum are all, as you say, smaller carbon things to do. So, like, keeping in mind, right, that the best thing I could have done was to not have children. Be super, super mindful about how you add children to the planet. You know what I mean? Does that make sense, or is that does that satisfy your poke, or do you feel still feel like poking?
1: No, I think it's. A fine response to, yeah. Um, I am worried. We've had a previous guest on who wrote a book called Empty Planet, and it just talks about the demographic changes right. in the developed world are going to be, from a political economy and public finance perspective, are going to be pretty bad. And so I wonder if further encouraging it actually makes sense. And also, just yeah, basic axiological, how to live a good life, kinds of yeah. questions. Uh, God, if someone if someone felt called to have kids and didn't because of the planet, which, okay, here's a question that maybe will interest you. I used to have this attitude of saying, if I change and no one else does, the world still goes to hell and and I just sacrifice my own interest for nothing. And I used to think, well, that's a good reason to just do whatever that whatever I wanted to in the first place. <laughs> and I've since sort of changed on that. There's a, I always forget if it's Dostoevsky Absolutely. or Kierkegaard. Well and I've said this so many times that it's basically a meme right now for listeners, which is that, The point of praying isn't to change the mind of God, but to change the person praying. So maybe it is, if that's the only thing I can control is my actions, then maybe I should just do the right thing, even though it doesn't make a difference. Or it's like the-
0: Absolutely. I do believe acting in the spirit of a way that is kind to the environment in which we live adds a layer of kindness to you. And kindness in general leads to a certain kind of fulfillment. Now, denying- Children. Now, listen. I have the op- I have the uh, uh, the edge on you here because you don't have kids. <laughs> and I'm saying that I have a child and full confession. So actually, this is when I go through these like mindfuck situations. So I actually have two children from two mothers. So one, ch- I have a total of two children from two women. So technically, I'm better than you know the replacement rate. You know what I mean? Like I'm still underpopulating the planet. You see? <laughs> but all that's my way of saying is that I did talk to a few different people. I talked to two people that have sort of interesting family models, which I talked about in the book. One guy doesn't have kids, but has just decided to fully embrace his mentoring role in the small community in which he lives. He's also a professor at NYU, but he mostly lives in a rural community. And like he takes his mentoring super, super seriously. That's interesting. Another interesting format that was um, two women who are married to each other or partnered with each other and two men who are partnered with each other. They have two children between the four of them. So they all get to parent, but not so much. And I have to tell you, as a full-time parent and as a dad, you know, I'm a stay-at-home dad, you know, a little less parenting couldn't hide. So again, you're at the front end of the funnel, right? Like, sounds like you're going to eventually have kids, right? But it's like you don't see it going in. It's, it's only, it's unfortunately, I think the biological imperative to reproduce is so strong that we have a very hard time visualizing the downsides of it before we go through it. So I guess all I'm sort of doing is shooting up a flare. To those kids who have those who are just listening will, will, would love to see Ross's face as he, as he n- knocks back his head. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I don't know. I just, the, the other thing is like, again, again, per Betsy Colbert, yeah. like you can't not address the family question. So it's 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 there and you should consider it.
1: People write us and ask us this question quite a lot too. And there are people on the team who have disagreed at Nori too. So I love that your response is basically, I've said what I told you to other people before that are parents and they'll just look at me with that thousand yard parent stare and be like, oh honey, you don't even know. (laughs) I'm just like, I have this attitude that the the most important thing a person will probably do like the most important thing most people will yeah. do is to raise children and hopefully raise halfway decent children. And so I do have this very idealized version of what being a parent means. I might be holding on to that a bit too statically for meaning. Maybe not everyone needs as much parenting in their life. Maybe the maybe there's some diminishing marginal returns so it sounds like what you're saying is that you still enjoy parenting, but you wouldn't mind sharing those duties a little bit more uh, outside yes. of yourself.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. If if the opportunity to have like a four-way parenting system had realistically presented itself, knowing what I know now, that could have been freaking awesome. And you know, for my friend who has that situation, she feels that her children's lives are very rich because she, instead of having intimate relationships with just a pair of parents, she has, you know, like a totally, you know, like I've I've been writing and think a lot about the octopus, you know, how the octopus has like brachiated intelligence, like every tentacle has its own mind. But, you know, going in that direction as humans, right, we're kind of heading in this direction anyway of being more networked than one-to-one. And so having that kind of family structure might be in a way more appropriate to where we're headed.
1: So a suggestion that might derive from this is that people should form thruples or quadruples and have fewer children and, and share them.
0: Maybe, maybe. T- time and share also, your children. Time share your children. <laughs> also, also, you know, so my son and daughter are many years apart and it basically my son has been effectively raised as an only child because my daughter lives daughter lives abroad. I just also wanted to stick up for people who have one child. You know, it's not... You know, for those of us, I grew up with an older brother and then a younger half brother. And, um, you know, I think those of us who've been born into multi-child households think that's the only way to go. But I think that, like, my son has had a very nice life as, a, as you know, basically an only child. And I think that parents shouldn't get into a twist about it, you know.
1: Mm, probably less nuggies. You probably had a lot of those.
0: Oh, God. I mean, it's like, you know, that children, there was some crazy stat I remember when my friend had their second son that children of a certain age like fight something like, you know, whatever it is five times every hour or something like that. You probably know. It's like crazy, right? So, boom, you have one child in your house. Like, that's not there. That's kind of good.
1: Also, that thing you said about octopus, octopuses? You're the fish guys. What is it?
0: It is, in fact, octopuses
1: octopuses thank you
0: yes that's a, i mean whatever it's open to interpretation but most fisheries biologists say octopuses
1: as if you needed one more reason not to eat cephalopods it's that yeah, their yeah. tentacles are smart themselves
0: yes indeed and, and 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 no i do not eat octopus anymore
1: it's best to just stay away from tapas restaurants cuz once you're in there you're not going to be <laughs> able to resist.
0: You can have the bocarones though the little the little anch- <laughs> you know the white anchovies that's cool just you know, run into the Tappas restaurant grab the bocarones and get the fuck out <laughs> before they start that's shoving oct- intellig- before they start shoving intelligent tentacles down your throat.
1: I know if I see it there I'm like hmm, that does mm-hmm. sound good. The answer yeah. is no, no pulpo. Stay away no from pulpo. that pulpo. Yeah. God, there's there's more things in here that I feel like this about too. Another one was telecommuting. We're so the company that produces this podcast. I'm a co-founder of. It's called Nori. Uh, we're a carbon removal marketplace, and we try to help people get paid for pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere and storing it. Yes. Nice. Yeah, and before the pandemic, we were already very pro co-location. If that's enough prefixes for you, um, and telecommuting, we don't love just because. We miss the sort of water cooler environment. We miss the creativity of being in the same place for integrated teams that are dynamic. We think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. um, And I think it also the experience is better, but okay, so I'm gonna do the same thing I did when you challenged me on the kid thing. Do I just, going to the office every day also kind of sucks. (laughs) So am I like misremembering this?
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so first of all, I'm a freelancer, so I haven't been going to an office for a very long time. So to some degree, this whole thing has been a shit show for me because everybody has been invading my office. Yeah. My son is going to school in my office. My partner is going to work in my office. Oh, no. So so there's that. But um and you're also catching me at this moment, having just written this book, Goodbye Phone, Hello World, the book that came just before Climate Diet, which really stresses the importance of physical you know, space co-occupying and stuff. And I do agree with that. Did you read that article in The New Yorker a couple, maybe a month ago? And it was like about the future of offices. I think it was John Seabrook wrote it.
1: There's been a couple articles like this recently. I'm not sure though. them.
0: Yeah, whatever, you know. But anyway, you know, it seems that whether or not we think telecommuting is a good idea, that, sorry, brother, we're headed in that direction. Like I live right around the corner from Spotify and Spotify just like, we're done. Oh, wow. We're done with the office. Yeah. Like this huge, you know, which, which was good for my neighborhood, good for my property values, but they're, they're gone. I do think that the thing that Seabrook pointed to, and I think that a lot of people are going to point to is that we're going to need some in-person time, but not necessarily five days a week of in-person time. And this whole infrastructure package that, you know, is just on the table right now, right? Like, you know, this idea of building an infrastructure to support a five-day-a-week commuting system seems kind of stupid, frankly. And I would much rather like build for two days a week or three days a week, um, build infrastructure around that. And I know we may need to have like a Chinese-type authoritarian system to enforce that. But I, I do believe um, before the pandemic, there were some very convincing studies that showed productivity was maximized uh, and improved when you had uh, telecommuting, certainly driving and commuting is America's biggest, like climate Achilles heel. And that unless we can address the commuting part, I mean, it'd be great if we all had maglev trains and that zipped us in and out of work, whatever. But what's the easier fix, getting a bunch of Americans to stay home in their pajamas or building like a ton of maglev trains? What do you think is more likely? Uh, pajamas. mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard to argue that one. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think I have probably a u- unique experience where I think Nori is a, a fun and vibrant creative place to work. And not everyone experiences their job is like that. So having to go yeah. and there are many jobs for, for whom uh working from home is totally adequate and there is no productivity loss. In fact, it may actually bring more joy because you can spend more time with your family.
0: Do you know the writer Carl Safina? Have you come across his stuff? Um Yeah, you guys are you guys are buds, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm the writer in residence at the Safina Center. So anyway, I was at Long Island at, with my electric car, and I picked up Carl, and we drove around. Actually, we ended up writing an op-ed that should run in the Times in the next day, uh, couple of days. It was called "An Infrastructure Package for Nature," and we were driving around Long Island, and it's like it's funny to drive around. In, have you ever driven an electric car at all? Like, have you ever test driven one?
1: I don't think so.
0: It was just a very interesting experience to drive through a service station like, whoop, don't need this. And then you're driving along like the artificially widened Long Island roads that you know started out as a little dirt path and now is four lanes with a slew of traffic lights, all for both commuters and shoppers, both of which are now up for grabs, right? Like, do we need this many commuters? Do we need this many shoppers? Do we need this many box stores? And so it was like a little like, I don't know how deep you're or which direction your college experience was, but like I read a lot of Latin poetry in, in school. And um, there's a moment in the Aeneid, where Aeneas, if you'll remember, is the hero of the Trojans. And Troy is under siege, and Aeneas wants to run out, and he knows that he can beat back the Greeks. And then Venus appears and removes the mortal mist from his eyes. And he sees that behind this phalanx of Greek soldiers is Zeus with his with his thunderbolts. And behind that phalanx is Neptune with his trident. And he's like, oh my God, this... Anyway, driving around in an electric car in Long Island is like having the mortal mist removed from your eyes. And you're like, why do we have all this? Like, why do we have all these lanes and service stations and box stores? And it's like, you know, we're in this funny reset moment where we're about to get this giant infrastructure package. And... You know, I think some people are like, well, oh, great. And then we build rebuild the roof so we can go back to normal. But like, maybe we shouldn't be building towards that normal. Maybe we really need a giant reset. Personally, look, I love people. I love being interacting with people. But maybe the people I should be interacting with are in my neighborhood, not at the water cooler that I have to drive 60 miles each way to meet. Just a thought.
1: I find that persuasive and I like the hedging, maybe not every day, but there are some benefits of it with your colleagues in person. And it doesn't have to be five days a week, nine to five. Yeah. That that model yeah. is clearly for a different sort of like tailorist kind of economy. It's not now. Also, yeah. bonus points for the uh Virgil. That's that's
0: all I want to on this show. Well, thank you. <laughs> good, good.
1: <laughs> I was thinking I'm like, can I shoehorn unhappy Dido into this <laughs>
0: There's nothing sure. No,
1: I couldn't figure out a way to. Yeah, one other thing I liked here, too, that I have been thinking about a lot is electrical and gas appliances. Um, yeah. This one, this one I don't see spoken about nearly as much. Can you give people a little rundown on that one?
0: Yeah, so I spent a fair amount of time talking to the people at Natural Resources Defense Council and you know, I leaned heavily on their research. And, you know, their idea is that we need to move to what they call smart electric. Like, it's not like your old toaster. It's like using the latest electric technology. Because if we are using smart electric, that means we, you know, the way that renewables is going to come into your home is going to be as electricity, right? So unless your home is prepared to receive those renewables, then you have to be the last mile in all of this. So And there is some debate, like the thing that I did is I bought a simple two burner induction electric stovetop. Now, induction electric, what it does is it's kind of magnetic. Don't push me to, don't poke me on this one, but it more or less conducts the electricity or the energy from your stove directly into your pot. So you can't use, if a pot, if you can't stick a magnet on your pot, you can't use it on an induction electric. I love cooking on this thing. It heats up super fast. You know, if you switch over to an ESCO that is, you know, a, a, a service provider of electricity that's coming from a renewable source, then you're pretty much connecting the renewable energy to your stove. Now it gets tricky with ovens because like to heat up an entire space is energy expensive. And there is some argument that maybe that's better done with gas. What I've done is actually switched to a toaster. A good toaster because it's a smaller space that I'm heating. Interestingly, this doubled back on the electrical vehicle debate. Do you know what one of the most energy intensive things about an electric vehicle is? No, what? The heat. Oh, really? Heating and cooling. The H. You know, who knew? But your car has an HVAC system. So the way that electric vehicles solve that problem is they heat your seat. And they heat the steering wheel. Is because
1: with internal combustion engines, is it just waste heat that is somehow being reused? But for yeah. electric, there isn't as much? Oh, okay. Interesting.
0: That's right. Yeah, you have to actually generate the electricity. So if you heat your ass and heat your hands, you're like, I'm sitting there like my hands are toasty. My butt is warm. What else do I need? <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Do I need like... <sighs> Blowing in my face. Then, interestingly enough, the, and it was cool. What's bizarre when you change, when you put on the heat in your electric car, like there's a readout that says how many miles of range you have. So the other day I was, I put on heat. It went from I had 220 miles of range to like 195. Mm-hmm. So like I could either drive 220 miles with no heat or 100, I mean, uh, yeah, or 195 with heat, heater on. You make the choice.
1: Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. At some point, I'd like to switch over from internal combustion engine over to something electric. And I think yeah. one of the other is the same as that Bitcoin point I was making, too, is people fight over electric vehicles with regard to the grid in which it charges. Is that one of the nuances yeah. you've seen, too?
0: Sure. And also the rare earth minerals that are needed to make the battery. That, to me, is the much more convincing argument. I think that one drives the other as far as supply is concerned. Like If we switch to an electrical system, I think eventually there's going to be a lot of pressure, especially now that we have this infrastructure package hopefully happening. You know, the idea that you could have um, rooftop solar everywhere, that you could have offshore wind, that's a pretty convincing argument. There's also something kind of amazing about like, even though it takes a while, like it took me 36 hours to fully charge my car, but all I had to do was plug it in.
1: Well, did they kick you out of Whole Foods?
0: Well, no, no. So that's that's if you're just plugging into a an outlet at home. Now there are these superchargers that like charge your car in like forty minutes. It's going to be five minutes anytime soon. Although I like the forty minute because I was saying to my friend, my, my friend and I are both like huge Italy Italo files, going all the way back to Virgil. But have you spent time in Italy before?
1: Yeah, yeah, I've been there Do a couple you, of
0: times. Have you ever been to an auto grill?
1: <laughs> no, is this like a roadhouse?
0: Auto grill it's a chain of gas stations that has delicious restaurants. And so the idea that you might mandatorily have to stop for 40 minutes while you charge, instead of having a shitty bag of chips, you have a delicious grilled, mixed grill and blah, 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 organic, da, 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 your car is charging, and you come out and you feel satisfied. Maybe you even have a glass of wine and the buzz wears off by the time you get back behind the wheel. That, to me, is civilization.
1: <laughs> Do you think that, in general, you're optimistic about climate change in your work?
0: I choose to be. Like, as I say, there are the Farhood man managers of the world who would forever move the goalpost another trillion dollars down the line the Farhad Manju of the New York Times, you know, who writes the he's he's like their columnist. And I feel like no matter what gets proposed, Farhad says it's not enough. You know, like, oh, we're doomed. Blah, 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 blah. Fair enough, Farhad. You know, whatever. That's fine. Go for it. But I can't live in that world. You know, I have to feel like I have agency and maybe it's self-delusion. But I would rather know that I was trying to live a better life and that I was having some effect, maybe just on my son, you know, in terms of a, as a sphere of influence. But I remain a intentional optimist, because to be a passive pessimist, it's just not a kind of world I choose to live in.
1: It's good to hear because some of the episodes we've had recently have been a bit on the door side. So I'm I'm happy yeah. you're, you're bringing optimism back. Also, I want to hear more about this podcast that you're you're doing now that we're getting close to Wrapping this show up yeah you're you're a goofball. I would listen to you talk <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we're trying it's uh you know this is um gonna be a show that looks at fisheries and aqua- well mostly fisheries from both a sustainability point of view and from a cu- culinary point of view, and I guess you' funny, me and my co-host a professor named Nick Mink, we're kind of trying to decide what our what our on air personalities are going to be. And um, I think he's going to take the more sort of pro-commercial fishing angle because he looks at, you know, the aspects of community sport. And I'm going to be the sort of slightly environmental scold, you know, sometimes vegan. I am going to cover Seaspiracy in it. I am going to do a deep dive on the octopus. I find, I don't know how you've found the experience of being a podcast host, but I do find after being, you know, I've spent a lot of time on the radio and stuff like that. There is something freeing about talking versus writing. Writing people can really, as you know, can really nail you to the wall. So um I'm looking to just have a little bit of fun <laughs> with my
1: life. It's definitely fun. And one of the reasons I like doing it is the same reason that, well, we started it with this, with being able to speak with people that maybe you don't always see eye to eye on everything, but there's something about text that is alien to us in our sympathy. And being yes. able to, to speak is oftentimes you you see the glimmer in their eye, you're having fun, a lot of value happens here. That's hard to quantify. I like talking to people too, that yeah, maybe, maybe we aren't on the same page, but I try to meet people where they are and just have a
0: good conversation no matter what. I think that's valuable. I don't, I don't have proof of it. I think it is. I, I completely agree. I mean, and I think to tell you the truth, it's one of the reasons we've hardened into the political positions that we've hardened into because, you know, and again, I say this more in my iPhone book, but online speech is declarative and it's not, it's not collaborative. And I always think of like, the best conversations are like music and they're like chamber music where, you know, there's a leitmotif and you hand it off to the violins and the violins take it and they hand it over to the oboe. Beautiful. The worst are when, you know, some piggy man sits at the head of the table and just like mansplains the whole dinner to death and that's the end of it.
1: No, that's pretty bad. No, I think that's true. I think being able to just have an open-ended curious, I think curiosity is the key. Is that is that for you too? Yeah.
0: Absolutely. No. And, and as you say, it's like even if you have somebody who's opposed to your point, whatever your quote unquote point of view is, it's kind of like, OK, take me to your weird place. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to go. <laughs> Actually, I really
1: respected your response to me in the beginning. Where I'm like, oh, there's a couple things in here that I want to poke you over. And you're just like, <laughs> yeah, OK, it's fine. Let's do it. <laughs> I was like resigned, but also pretty chummy.
0: No, but you know, at my in my um in my class I teach at NYU, I assign everybody a contemporary book to review. And I it's like, I want you to review this. This is not a book report. I want you to review it because I think too often we look at books as this like edifice. Like somebody wrote this book and who am I to disagree with it? And I think a book should be inviting and I think it should be warm and it should be human, you know, because that's that's all we got.
1: Yeah, that's a beautiful sentiment. I think all of your books achieve this, too. They all strike me as you're very curious and having fun. It seems like you love your job. You kind of lucked into it, I think, a bit.
0: I do feel lucky. You know, certainly, you know, speak to my partner about it. Like, there's many dark moments. But, you know, that's part of the journey as well.
1: Just staring at the blank page, trying to get it done?
0: I have a lot of anxiety about the thing not done yet. So, like, I remember for Omega Principle, I had to go to Antarctica. You know what I mean? And like, that's a pretty heavy. Th- yeah. But, it's but, you know, like you say that, you know, like, oh, I wish you could go to Antarctica. I guarantee you, if I handed you a ticket to Antarctica and said, okay, and you're going to have to come up with 50 pages on this. <laughs> right? right yep, like, well taken, yeah. So, so yeah, stuff like that, which of course makes you feel doubly bad about yourself because I'm complaining about a free trip to Antarctica.
1: Yeah, it's hard to break out of the smugosphere on that one. You're going to get no no sympathetic ears.
0: Nope. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) But anyway.
1: Well, for people who want more of you, for whom more than an hour was not nearly enough, Paul Greenberg, where can they get more? Where do you want them to read? What do you want them to read? Is it The Climate Diet? Is that you want your publishers to... This is the first one, and there are others.
0: Yes, please read the climate diet and then you know if you ever show the video. This is the other one I have out. Goodbye phone hello world, which allows you to peek Ooh, through the cover. See? Yeah. Can, it's actually exactly iPhone sized. But go to PaulGreenberg.org. I am I'm a I'm an org, not a com. Yeah. Good job. Um, and uh, there's links to everything, including actually I did a frontline a few years ago, um, called The Fish on My Plate. You could look at that. I've got a bunch of other various interviews and TV stuff. I was on Dr. Oz a few times this year's so that's uh, that's always fun. But yeah, start with org, and then we'll go from there. If you eat
1: fish, then I think you should definitely eat. What's, what's the best one? I think is four fish where you typically steer people who are interested in fish? Is that the first word protocol?
0: That's the one, that's the most selling. So I assume that must be the best. The shortest is American catch. It sort of depends. Like, are you interested in aquaculture? Or are you interested in local? Or are you interested in sort of, Biological evolutionary, like each one of four fish is the you know, probably most approachable. The local is more of the American catch, and the deep dive into biology and chemistry is omega.
1: Yeah, we talked about this a little bit the omega principle. I did not expect to be nearly as fascinated by the omega three uh, supplement <laughs> industry as it turns out. I guess I really am. That's a, a wild world. And yeah. Uh, yeah, well, links to all of those things are in the show notes. Uh, thanks so much for being here, Paul.